Uh, today we're continuing with the parables of Jesus, and I thought I would take the opportunity uh, to address uh, what is going on in our world, uh, specifically what's going on in Europe, and use, use the occasion uh, to talk about the parables of the second coming of Jesus. And um, this is a question that has come to the forefront, uh, even over the last couple of years with the pandemic. It was a, a question that people had, and now it is another question that people have with this war in Ukraine that continues to develop every day. There's something new. There's another piece of the of the. It's it's extending, and everybody is watching and wondering, and there's all all kinds of anxiety and all kinds of questions. And for people of faith or people who just think about the future and wonder where everything is going, uh, this is a pressing, pressing issue. And Jesus has a lot to say about this. And uh, there are several parables, actually, that he, uh, that he uses to teach people about uh, his second coming, which is attached to the end of the world, as it were, uh, the great redemption of the world, the change of everything that, that the Bible seems to talk about from cover to cover, that we're winding to some sort of conclusion and some sort of change that will happen and the redemption of everything. And the uh, Revelation talks about the new heaven and the new earth and the old order of things passing away death and sorrow and crying and sin, and there's a new order, uh, a new way, a new heaven, a new earth that's predicted all over the place uh, in the scripture. So what of this? When you, when you take a deep breath and you look at the last couple of years, uh, I mean, we're just finishing two years of a pandemic. A pandemic means it's global. It's around the world. There are many families in this room who have probably had a bout with COVID. There are those of you online who probably had a bout with COVID. Uh, we're talking about worldwide. Six million people have lost their lives, estimated at least, due to this virus in two years. And we're just finishing the two years. You, you probably had mixed feelings today when you walked into the building and they didn't ask you for your vaccine passport. And you, you can keep your masks on. Uh, there's no, you know, I, I like to take it off when I speak, but I totally understand keeping it on uh, because you feel that sense of protection, security, perhaps. You, two years, two long years of this. And then right at the end of the two years, we've got this invasion into Ukraine of Russia. Uh, really something that's been in the works for years, but now has finally come to this place where it's actually happened. And we're looking at this, and nowadays people have a broadcast quality camera in their pocket. And it doesn't matter what Russian media tries to censor or not censor, because everybody's got these cameras in their pockets, and they're taking images of the destruction. Uh, this is, I think, the hospital in Mariupol, uh, the children's hospital that was shelled. And uh, we're looking at these images that look like they're from some uh, apocalyptic movie, but they're real. And they're happening every single moment of every day. This is what we're seeing. And it's probably the first time, though, that we're seeing it so vividly because of the technology that's in people's pockets. Uh, we're seeing an exodus now of it's, it's well over two million people who have run for their lives uh, from Ukraine to neighboring countries and just trying to survive. I mean, even trying to get food and water and heat and electricity wherever they are is like the number one pressing need. And you, you see these subways and these places just jam-packed with people, and you see the same look in their eyes, the same look of uncertainty and suffering, and am I going to make it through to another day? Are my children going to make it through to another day? Is my, is my husband, am I going to have to say goodbye to my husband maybe for the last time? 
is it going to be today? And this is what's happening. And we feel the pulse of this in the West, again, uh, because of the technology. Not only that, uh, we're seeing skyrocket energy costs. Uh, I think all of you took the took some sort of vehicle to come here today. Probably no, none of you walked or rode a bike in this weather. But wow, I mean, this is some serious, serious change at the pump. A minor thing perhaps for us compared to what they're going through over there. But all these things cause us to think about this subject. And we wonder, is this, you know, you got this worldwide pandemic. You have a war that could escalate into who knows what very quickly. Folks, uh, three and a half weeks ago, everybody was happy the Olympics were ending and, you know, there was a threat. Uh, but I don't know how seriously people were taking the threat. And now, whatever it is, three weeks later, it's, it's a complete change so, so, so quickly as if overnight. And people wonder, where is this going to go? Is this going to be... The, the commencement of perhaps a world war. You hear these terms being tossed around. You hear terms like nuclear weapons being tossed around. Uh, it's, it's to a point now where it's very, very, people are asking all kinds of questions. Is this the end? Is this the beginning of the end? I mean, it's a serious question. And uh, Jesus has a lot to say about this. And there's actually five parables. Most of them are really short. But he uses this teaching tool uh, to talk to people about the end and about his return. And for Jesus, these things are connected. They're not independent of one another. And we're, we're not going to go through, you know, five parables and try and, you know, pick them apart line by line uh, today. But I think what's really helpful for us and what's really important for us, and I, I'm, I'm going to take it that, you know, most of you have a pretty open view to the idea uh, that Jesus could come back. You, most of you have a pretty open view that the world is winding to some sort of conclusion. It doesn't look like it's going to be a very good conclusion. Maybe for you today, though, the second coming of Jesus is an irrelevant thing. If it happens, it happens. If it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. But you don't really understand the impact of this on your life. Hopefully, at the end of this message, you will. And we're going to have communion at the end as well. Uh, you'll see why it fits in with, with this very, very well. But, but I think what's most helpful for us in understanding this, because what we're prone to do, especially in church life, is to do diagrams and charts of all these things and try and figure out. I mean, there's folks, there's so many fancy terms about this, you know. Are you pre-tribulational, pre-millennial? You say, pre-what? I didn't even change my clock today. <laughs> like, and it's so complicated and people, uh, you know, rapture or not rapture and amillennial, pre-futurist, history. <laughs> historicist and preterist and partial preterist and what in the world do these all these terms mean and we've got these diagrams and these charts and it's going to happen here and there's a diagram here and a seven-year thing here and all of these things all those things are are, are fine um, but I don't know how much those things actually transform people's lives and affect the way that they live I'm not so sure uh, so I think a better way of looking at this, rather than trying to plot it out and figure out times and dates and charts, uh, as we learned on, on Wednesday night in the Bible study, you know, rather than having a chart, do you have an agenda? Do you have a mission for your life as a result of your belief that Jesus is coming back one day, or is it just a series of charts to you? Now, the, the best thing that you can do to understand what Jesus teaches about this, and he has a clear answer, I think, to the question that we're asking today, but the best way for you to understand it, the simplest way for you to understand it, is to see where he's teaching it. Where and what's the context of when Jesus gets into the biggest bulk of his teaching about the second coming and about the end of the world, so to speak? Where does he do this? Because when you understand that, you, you're going to get the gist of his answer to the question. So when you, when you look at the scripture closely and you, you really 
try and figure out, okay, what's the, what's the broader context of what Jesus is talking about here? Uh, you're going to see something interesting uh, because it's right on the heels of something very important that we overlook. Uh, so what you have in, in uh, Matthew 23, and you see the same thing in Mark, you see a little bit of it in Luke, is you see Jesus uh, sharply, sharply criticize while he's on his way to what he knows will be his, his last stand, so to speak, and his last uh, visit to, to Jerusalem, in a sense, visit. He knows it's winding to the end, and he's going to, uh, to go after or to really confront uh, a group of people that he has had issues with or people that had issues with him, um, and he's, he's going to finally give it to them. And these are the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. We've talked about these people for several weeks now. The ultra-religious, the ultra-orthodox, the people who understood the first five books of the Bible, who could teach them, who memorized them, but who, in Jesus' view, many of them were quite hypocritical. And he had big conflicts with them. And you will see in Matthew 23, if you look at Matthew's gospel as, as, a, as the example, and it's got a lot of information there. You'll see he's going to denounce the Pharisees and teachers of the law. And he's going to use some of the strongest language that he uses is in that chapter. Uh, it's, it's hard to read it uh, without, without cringing. I mean, he uses the word hell often in there. He uses images of torment. He uses words like hypocrite over and over again, and it's really a chapter where he is right after them, and, and he's, he's not holding anything back. And at the end of this criticism, and this is often overlooked, he says this, and you can read it in Mark, it's a little bit different. In Luke, it's a little bit different. John doesn't have this, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you can read them. Uh, o Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. Remember we sang it this morning, you hide me in the shadow of your wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. Speaking to the city of Jerusalem, what's the house? The temple. He's, he's referring to the temple in the city of Jerusalem. Your house is left to you desolate. Oh boy, that's a pretty strong statement. What's he saying? Something's going to happen to the temple? Interesting. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Here he's speaking about something in the future. He's already come in on Palm Sunday when they said that to him. But here he's mentioning this quote from the Psalms again as if it's going to happen sometime in the future. This is really, really important for you to understand. He is making a statement there that is, it's outlandish to say that. He's saying something, something terrible is going to happen to the temple in the city of Jerusalem. And he is very critical that the mass of people there has not recognized who he is, has a cold heart to him, especially the ultra-religious folks. And uh, he, has, he has very strong warnings for them about this. And then he gets into this whole long thing in Matthew chapter 24, and you'll find it uh, in Mark 13, you'll find it in Luke uh, 21 as well, and he gets into all these different signs of the end of the age, the end of the world. They, Jesus left the temple, Matthew 24 verse 1, and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Gorgeous, it was enlarged, uh, the the temple area was enlarged there uh, by uh, Herod the Great, I think it was, and he enlarged. So you got a gorgeous, gorgeous thing there. This is the place, in their view, where God meets with the people. And they say, look at these buildings, and Jesus again going after them. He says, do you see all these things? I tell you the truth, not one stone, not one stone here 
will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Wow, again, this is an outlandish statement that he is making. Then he comes to the Mount of Olives and they ask him a question. And they say, tell us, when will this happen? Where there's a debate about the this. Does he mean the destruction of the temple? Does he mean the end of the world? What is he, what's the this? We're not sure. When will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Do they think of these things as two different things? Do they think of them as the same thing happening at the same time? We're not entirely sure. Maybe they're not entirely sure, and that's why they're asking the question. And then Jesus gets into this whole long uh, uh, discourse about the signs of the end. But do you see the context of it? He's going after the ultra-religious folks directly. With a, with, it can only be described as a condemnation. And then he says, I'm telling you, this temple will be no more. I'm telling you. And then he gets into the signs of the end in, term, in their respo- his response to their question. And then he's going to tell five parables, one after the other. Bang, 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 back after back to back. Uh, the owner of the house, which you only technically see in Mark 13, the reference on your screen. Then he's going to tell the owner of a robbed house. Matthew 24, the faithful and wise servant, right after that, Matthew 24, the ten so-called virgins, uh, Matthew 25, and the parable of the talents, Matthew 25, back to back to back to back to back, just like that. All these teaching parables to emphasize what he's trying to say in Matthew 24. Are you with me so far? So once you understand the broader context of these things, the... the, um, uh, the parables, and even what he's saying in Matthew 24 is going to get more clear to you. But I want to give you just four principles about this and about how you process what's going on right now and what I think God wants you to understand as we look at this. This is a, are questions that have been asked by generations of people who have, who have lived through all kinds of problems. We're not the first generation to be asking these questions, and I think these four things are consistent uh, throughout history, all right? Uh, Number one, frequency. Frequency, what do I mean by that? Uh, Well, if you you look at Matthew 24, uh, Jesus talks about things that will happen, and he talks about uh, uh, wars and rumors of wars, and he talks about nation rising against nation. In Luke, you'll see the word pestilence, which I suppose you could interpret as a, as a pandemic without uh, too much argument. Uh, nation will rise against nation, race against race. There'll be false uh, messiahs who come and say that they are Jesus and call themselves the Messiah, but they'll be false in what they're saying. Uh, There'll be all kinds of trouble in the world, but he does say that it will be like the pains of labor. Like that. He uses that as a simile. How many mothers in the room? You know exactly what he's talking about. Because you've been there before, and you know that those, those pains of labor, they start to get, uh, number one, more and more frequent, yes? And then they get more and more intense. And any of you uh, dads who have been in the room while your, 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 your wife gave birth to your, your children, you, you know very well that that's exactly what happens. And it's, it's pretty, pretty constant truth, that. And so you have a frequency that you need to watch for. And this is one of the things Jesus teaches in Matthew 24. It's going to happen more and more often. All right? So when we zoom out and we look at what's going on right now, you have a nation invading another nation. The word invasion is what it is, folks. That's, this is exactly what it is. Now, can you tell me, you don't have to be a historian to, to know this, but you just, even if you know your Bible a little bit, can you tell me about an invasion that happened way back in the Bible? Any invasion? Wow, very good. Yeah, the Babylonians invaded 
Judah. That's true. That's an invasion. Somebody else. Romans, yeah, something of an invasion, I suppose. They certainly were in power. Yeah, the Assyrian invasion, the Babylonian invasion. I mean, you look at the Old Testament, folks. There's a lot of invasion there. There's a lot of death. There's a lot of suffering, and there's a lot of invasion. This is not the first time that we have seen this behavior where a nation invades another nation. They surround them. They put uh, their military uh, at their border, and they wait for an opportune time, and they strike. You can see the exact same maneuver, the exact same tactic in the Bible, you see this. You don't even have to know the last 2,000 years of history. You can see that it's as old as the Bible. This is nothing new. Nothing new. What about one leader who is threatened by another leader's popularity? Is that not what's happening to some measure? Where you have one leader who's uh, very much... Uh, uh, you know, the, Ukraine is the underdog in this. This is, a, this is not, nobody thought that this war was going to turn out the way that it's turned out so far. Nobody thought this. And here you see this, this leader who is now uh, so respected and so envied and so uh, inspirational to the world. He's going to be speaking uh, uh, via video to the Canadian Parliament, I think, this Tuesday. And people will be riveted watching what he has to say. You have another leader who is threatened by that leader's popularity. Have you seen this before? You see this in the Bible where? Saul and David. I mean, maybe not exactly the same thing, but here you see a leader who is bent on the destruction of another leader because of jealousy, yes, but it's not like, well, I'm just going to hunt him down. It's I'm going to send an army to find him and to, to get rid of him. Folks, this kind of behavior is not something that is unprecedented. This kind of thing is, it happens a lot in history. You see it even in the Bible. You see this kind of thing happen. What about when leaders give false narratives and propaganda? And they say things like the foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, uh, we are not planning to attack other countries. We did not attack Ukraine either. Did you know that you, you, can, be, you can go to jail for 15 years if you live in Russia and you speak out against what's going on and you call it a war? You could go to jail for that. They've arrested more than 10,000 people in Russia for protesting this war. And yet you have a narrative that's coming out of Russia as false. Can I ask you, have you ever seen this before? Does this happen in the Bible? Give me an example. Oh, <laughs> I'm not going to go there. Yeah, go, go ahead. Sanhedrin trial of Jesus, okay, interesting. I'm thinking even more basic, Old Testament. Okay, interesting, Jezebel and Elijah, but that's heavy theological stuff. I'm thinking even more basic. Pharaoh, yeah, that's a bit of a false narrative. Uh, Pharaoh and the execution of the Hebrew boys, yeah. So how about, how about as old as Deuteronomy? where Moses writes about false prophets who give false information to the people. These are leaders. They give false information to the people in God's name. It's a false narrative. And what does, what does Moses say about these leaders, these false prophets? They do not follow them. They speak presumptuously, and what they're saying is false. And there's condemnation that is pronounced upon false prophets. Even in the, in the early church history, in AD 64, the emperor Nero 
uh, who who uh, was a bit of a unstable, I suppose is the word that you could use. And he uh, set fire to the city of Rome. And you know what he did? He spun a false narrative. And he said, the Christians did it. Let's persecute the Christians. And he blamed them for the fire that he set to Rome. False narrative from a leader. This is nothing new. This, this kind of thing happens. I mean, uh, read, uh, read Orwell's uh, 1984, and you'll see propaganda and how the, the false narrative from leadership to deceive people is a common theme. Now, I know I've opened up a can of worms because some of you, you're, you're itching to say, oh, yeah, let me talk to you about Canada and false narratives and all that. Just hold, hold, hold your tongue, okay? Uh, you're all entitled to your view, but I'm talking about uh, what what's very crystal clear here, okay? This is a clear example of propaganda. This kind of thing happened with with uh, the Nazis and Hitler. I mean, this is there's nothing new here. This is as old as the Bible. What about an exodus of millions of people? Where does the word exodus come from? The exodus. It comes from an exodus of more, well over a million people who, yes, uh, you know, you, you, we picture this kind of triumphant leaving of Egypt, but folks, they're running for their lives. They're grabbing everything that they have and they're running for their lives in an open window that God has temporarily given to them and they run for their lives out of Egypt. We're seeing the same thing happen today. You've got millions of people grabbing what little belongings that they have and running for their lives. This is, but what we're going to see, frequency that increases in these things. And this is debatable whether or not this is more frequent today. It's debatable, folks. I mean, yes, we have modern communication and we, we know things quicker. But is this kind of thing happening more and more and more frequently as we march through time? Debatable. You're going to have some who say yes. You're going to have some who say no. But this is what Jesus says to watch for. Notice, he's not saying things are going to get less frequent in this regard. He's saying they're going to get more frequent in this regard. So it's going to get worse and worse, not better and better. Say, whoa, that's a real doom and gloom kind of view. Well, sit tight, but this is, this is what he's saying. It's more and more frequent. So when you see these incidences happening, watch. Because they, when they start to happen more often, this is what he's saying will happen. Either he's right or he's wrong, but he's talking about about an increasing frequency, not a decreasing frequency. Then, just as the labor pains, there's an intensity that's going to grow as well. So Matthew 24, frequency and also intensity. Now, we look and we say, well, you've got, you've got a pandemic, and then you've got the potential of, I can't even believe I'm saying it, the potential of a world war that could happen. Uh, when you've got the President of the United States using these terms and saying NATO will not uh, get involved in this because that's World War III. When you have the Russians saying we are going to shell the transport of these weapons that are coming in from NATO countries, folks, that, that, those are triggers for things. So uh, people say, well, look at what's going on. We've never, never seen this before. That could be challenged, okay? A hundred years ago, roll the clock back, and you have the first world war from 1914 to 1918, an estimated 20 million people lost their lives, to say nothing of the, of the wounded. Estimated 20 million people who died in that war. On the heels of that war, Back-to-back. Back. Here we have back-to-back, back, a pandemic and a potential world war. But here, in, 100 years ago, you have a, a, a world war that killed 20 million people. And then you have the so-called Spanish flu. 
uh, improperly named, but it first started in Kansas, really, if you look at the, the data on it. But uh, this thing, right on the heels of the First World War, and an estimated, because a different way of counting back then, estimated 50 million people worldwide lost their lives. Back to back, you have those events happen 100 years ago. Which is worse, today or then? Debatable, right? So in terms of, in terms of intensity, what would the people 100 years ago been, be thinking? What would believers in the Bible be thinking when they lived through a world war and then a pandemic? I mean, what would, uh, and even within that context, you have the birth of the modern Pentecost movement of which our church is a part of that starts well a little earlier but around the same time so from 1906 and that's a picture of uh, um, Azusa Street Mission and the leaders uh, in that in that church uh, from the U.S. but this is a worldwide movement some debate as to whether it actually started there or in other parts of the world but you have all these things happening at the same time You've got people who are saying, we've experienced the book of Acts in our own personal lives, saying this at the same time as the conclusion of a world war and a pandemic. Do you think maybe those people would have preached about the end of the world a lot? They did. That's all they preached about. Was the, was the coming of Jesus. And with good reason, if you lived in that time, you'd be thinking that as well. It's a beautiful picture because you see different races there. You see different genders there. Those, a lot of those people weren't even educated, and they, they were the leaders of that movement in the early times. Certainly not perfect people when you read the history, but they were way ahead in terms of their understanding, uh, you know, about... Uh, uh, racial equality and gender equality and all of that. I mean, they, they were really incredible people if you study the beginnings of it. But all these things happening at the same time, pretty intense. I could imagine some of the sermons that would have been coming out of the pulpits of those churches about the soon end of the world and the coming of Jesus, most probably. Uh, another principle, which they would have preached back then, is surprise. And the element of surprise, and this is what you see most specifically, the dominant theme in Jesus' parables about the second coming is surprise, is that you do not know. So the, the, the story of the, um, uh, the owner of the house, Matthew, uh, sorry, Mark chapter 13, verse 34, 35, about that day no one knows the hour, not even the angels or the sun, even Jesus himself is somehow restricted from the knowledge of when he will return, but only the Father, be on guard, be alert, you do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away, he leaves his house and he puts his servants in charge, each assigned with their task, and he tells one to keep, uh, the one at the door to keep watch. So, therefore, keep watch. Keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether at evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. It's the element of surprise. You do not know. Then you have the, the, the man with the house that uh, potentially was robbed. Keep watch, Matthew 24, because you do not know what day the, or what, on what day our Lord will come or your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch. And he would not have let his house be broken into, so you must be ready because the Son of Man will come in an hour that you do not expect him, the element of surprise. So it strikes me as kind of strange that Jesus would want this to be a surprise to people. I mean, you're talking about, really, folks, if you, the modern mind is so skeptical toward the idea of Jesus coming back. I mean, talk to, your, talk to your colleague or your coworker or your fellow student with a straight face about the second coming of Jesus. They're going to look, like like, look at you like you're crazy. They're going to look at you like you're really, you're really, 
you're a strange, you know, you're, you're out there. You believe in that stuff. Uh, just, just as an aside, folks, the justification we have for believing in the second coming of Jesus is the resurrection of Jesus. That's why we believe that Jesus will come back one day, because Jesus rose from the dead. And let me tell you, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is a, is a, a piece of history that is extremely difficult to refute if you do the research. You do the research on the resurrection, and many, many great skeptics have done it, and they've ended up on the other side of the coin and become believers in the thing. Well, if you believe that Jesus Christ came back from the dead literally, that means that there's a supernatural. That means the miraculous is possible. That means there's a God. That means what Jesus said about everything is likely true. I'd believe somebody who came back from the dead, wouldn't you? If he calls himself God and then he's risen from the dead, he's probably right in that he's God. And he's probably right in everything else that he's saying. And if he says he's going to come back one day, I might well be smart to believe what he says. It's not without justification that we believe in the second coming. So the element of surprise, why then? Why would he make it such a mystery? Why wouldn't he say, I'm going to tell you exactly when this is going to happen. I'm going to make a chart for you, and I'm going to tell you exactly. You don't need to worry. I'm going to tell you exactly when. Well, the answer is in the parables. Because if we knew when, how would we live? How would we live? We wouldn't live with sobriety. We wouldn't live watching. We would just say, oh, I've got plenty of time to sleep in today. Is daylight savings time in reverse in my moral life? I have plenty of time. I don't need to worry about this God thing because it's going to be at this particular time here. Who knows? Maybe I won't even be alive then. Let them worry about it when it happens to them. We, Jesus knows, God knows the heart of man, doesn't he? And in these parables, you'll see this constant thing of the element of surprise, the story of the, the ten virgins. Just think of them as ten young women if it, if it bothers you, okay? In that culture, that's the term that they would use. And, you know, they took a chance and they said, well, I'm, I'm not going to pack enough oil. The bridegroom is going to come with his entourage and I want to go to the wedding. And I'm not going to pack enough oil. Take a chance and maybe he'll come. And they, they, got, they, they missed their opportunity. Okay, let's go run at midnight and go and buy some oil. And they come back and, sorry, everybody's in the wedding who's coming to the wedding. You're not coming. Surprise, you missed it. You, 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 you weren't prepared. You weren't living in a sober fashion, and you missed it. Element of surprise. So you say, well, that doesn't seem fair. Well, it's, it's as if God wants to keep us on our moral toes. And he wants people to live with sobriety. And he wants people to live uh, with uh, uh, humility before him and before one another. Uh, I, I think if we knew the exact time that this was going to happen, the world would be in a lot worse shape than it is now. You say, wow, this is a lot of doom and gloom. I mean, and if you read Matthew 24, one way, I suppose, you, you look and you say, it seems, like, it seems like Jesus would be one of these guys standing on a street corner on a, with a cardboard box around him and t saying that the end is near, doom and gloom, doom and gloom. Not if you read the whole thing and you read it carefully. Because while there is judgment that's associated with this, for sure, there's also, and this is the fourth principle, there's also hope, isn't there? Paul calls it the blessed hope, the coming of Jesus, the, uh, the parousia in the Greek language. He calls this the blessed hope that we have. So, so why would this be a hopeful thing if it seems to be all of this doom and gloom? Any ideas? Yes. The, 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 the second coming of Jesus is the answer to probably the biggest objection that people have had since the beginning to the existence of God and the objection to Christianity. And the biggest objection is, why is it that we have this going on. 
Why, if there's a if if God exists and He's all powerful and He's moral and He's good, why does He allow a nation to invade another nation and and kill people? Wouldn't God put a stop to that? Why did God allow this to happen in my life? This particular thing happened. It's not fair. It's unjust. I suffered. And if God is good, and if God is powerful, then why didn't God do something about it? This is, a, this, this is a valid question. It may not be a valid question for the existence of God, but it's certainly a valid question about the character of God. It's a good question. Folks, I would like you to tell me if you have a good answer to that question apart from the second coming. You don't. I don't. If you do not believe or accept the second coming as part of your faith, you're believing in one strange God because he's going to allow these things to happen with no conclusion to the matter. Folks, the world is filled with unjust suffering. It's filled with it. There's more injustice in the world than there is justice. Don't kid yourselves. I mean, you can try to, as a Christian, you can try to, to play with that whole idea, but you are going to live through injustice. And you're going to say to yourself, there seems to be no resolution to this. Why? Why did this happen to me? Why did this happen to my children? Why did this happen to this person? And where is the justice and where is the finality? And where has the table been turned on evil? The answer, you, you have no answer to this question apart from the second coming of Jesus. And I challenge you on this. You have no answer. We have no answer to that question. We can spin it and say, well, you know, God is sovereign and all things work together for the good of those who love him or God according to his purpose. Yes, 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 true. But what's the conclusion? Where is the justice that he will mete out? If he's not coming back, where is it? And the answer, you don't have any. But thank God. That the story that we now live is not the end of the story. And that's why those preachers of a hundred years ago preached about the second coming of Jesus. Because that was a hopeful thing for them. It wasn't a doom and gloom thing for them. It was hope because they saw what is wrong will be made right once and for all. What, what, what was the injustice of the world will be made right. God will do something about it. He is on the move. He is doing something even now in our lives, and that's proof positive that he will bring a conclusion to this matter and to this problem of evil and suffering. And they saw this as a very, very hopeful thing. Not doom and gloom and hurts and let's try and develop a structured theology and all all of that is fine. But what's going to change your life is when you actually live like Jesus is coming back today. If you live your life as if this thing could end today, my, my Lord could come back. Anytime. He, and rapture or no rapture, I, I mean, the rapture is a, is a, a theological view that, that I personally hold to, but there's a great deal of the world that doesn't hold to it. You can debate about rapture or no rapture. If you don't believe in the second coming of Jesus, my friends, th- there's a hope that is lost without that belief. But if you hold to the idea Jesus came, Jesus died, Jesus rose from the dead, Jesus ascended. We learned on Wednesday night the ascension of Jesus is a demonstration of his deity. It's a demonstration that he's God and that he will come again. He came once, he's going to come again, and he will bring a conclusion to the matter. He will put the nail in the coffin of evil once 
and for all. Folks, I get excited when I think about that. Because when I look around and when I turn on the news and I see all of this doom and gloom, I'm telling you, folks, it's enough to make you just want to check out. But when you believe, say, wait a second, this is not the end. God is on the case and God will bring a conclusion to the matter. Forty years after Jesus said, Jerusalem, your city is desolate. Not one stone will be left upon another. Forty years after Jesus said it, at the conclusion of the, Jew, the wars of the Jews, they called it, from 66 to 70, Titus went in there and destroyed the city and the temple just as Jesus said, and it has never since been rebuilt. Just as he said. Can you imagine the shock of the people when he told them your temple is going to be finished it's going to be desolate not one stone will be left upon another they would have looked at him like he was crazy they would have looked at him the same way that they look at us today when we talk about the second coming and yet yet 40 years later you can go and visit the site, folks. You can see it. <laughs> you can go and visit it. You can go and pray at the wailing wall, the retaining wall that's still left over there in Jerusalem, considered like the holiest place there where the Jews will go and pray. And they, what will they do? They will believe for the Messiah to come. So do we. We believe that the Messiah will come again. And when he comes... He's going to bring justice. He's going to bring transformation. He's going to bring redemption. And that, my friends, is a source for hope for us. Whether we grieve over what's happening in Ukraine or whether we grieve over what's happened even in our own personal stories and in our own lives, you need to make the coming of Christ a part of your beliefs and hang on to it. Even as those people from 100 years ago who lived through a world war and a pandemic, even as they hung on it, okay? So I'd like Rose and uh, Viano, if you want, to come to the, uh, the platform, and we're going to finish today by having communion. Um, and hopefully you all have emblems there. If you don't, Wedlin will be able to serve you. Just put your hand up. Anybody is welcome to partake with us today. Maybe you're visiting. That's fine. As long as you understand what we're about to do, and I'm going to explain it to you very, very simply here. Uh, but we often read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 when we do this uh, because it has a kind of a form to it. And Paul is talking to the church in Corinth about what we're going to do, and he does so with a bit of a criticism towards these people, but at the same time, he does tell us things. And uh, so he, he talks to them about the way that they're doing it, and he has a sharp uh, criticism of them, but this is what he says, and watch closely. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So he's right in front of them, and he's telling them, You need to do this to remember me. Implication, I'm leaving, and you are going to need to remember me. You are going to need to remind yourself of me. You are going to have to remember. And this is a very, very simple picture to help us to remember. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And this little wafer that we have, you just peel the plastic back and you have a simple wafer. This is a symbol, a picture of the physical body of Jesus that uh, hung on the cross for us, for our sins. But it's also a picture of the body of Christ, the people of God today. And so when we take of this bread, we're remembering, Jesus, you died for my sin. You died for my sin so that I could be forgiven and I could be a part of your body today. Let us partake together. And then after the supper, 
he took the cup, and this would likely be a Passover uh, meal. I'm just going to try and open this here. <laughs> yeah, you'll have to struggle with it a little bit maybe, but that's good that it's sealed. And this is just going to expose a little simple juice for you. Okay, and Paul continues to the Corinthians, and he says, In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in what? Remembrance of me. You need to remember. For whenever you eat this bread, watch, and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There's hope in that. There's not only sorrow, but there's hope in that. Yes, Jesus died for my sins. Yes, an innocent died for me. His blood was spilled as an innocent man, as God and man at the same time as the atonement for my sins. That should move me to repentance. Yes, but you proclaim this until he comes. Hope in remembrance. Amen. Let us partake of the juice together. Would you pray with me, Father? We, we are so thankful and so grateful uh, for your word today, Jesus, we worship you. We're so uh, so struck uh, by how direct you are to us, by how clear you speak to us through the ages, uh, and Lord, uh, how how uh, soberly you speak to us. And I pray, God, as we as we survey what's what's going on, and as it causes us to look at our own lives. Lord, uh, that we at the conclusion of the matter would rejoice with hope and not despair. For Lord, you are in control. You came, you died, you rose, you ascended, and you are coming again. Would you rivet those truths into our soul that we would be able to walk through life with confidence with joy and with hope for the future, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can go ahead and play as we finish up today, and uh, you can pick up your kids over in screen number 11. I think there's a movie, a kid's movie playing there in an hour, so you want to pick up your kids or they're going to get stuck in that movie. <laughs> and uh, have a great, great Sunday today. I look forward to seeing some of you on Wednesday night or Thursday morning. You can give to Erdo on your way out. Wedlin will be over at the desk. God bless you. Have a great Sunday today.